off on another episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast, broadcasting from the base at La Madre Mountain, just south of Area 51. My name is Ryan, the original outlaw of the airwaves, bringing you an epic episode today. We're going deep, deep into uh, green territory. Yeah, the discussing some of the most controversial issues of our time. We're going to get into uh, cannabis in the Bible the devil's lettuce. And we are talking with an expert on the subject, Mr. Chris Bennett, author of Liber 420, Cannabis, Magical Herbs, and the Occult. He's also the author of various books on this subject and has a long history of delving into the research, heavy, heavy research with alchemical roots. We're going to talk about how Masons, Rosicrucians, and the Illuminati are all involved with, uh, well, acknowledging this and how this holy grail of greenery is not just a modern pastime or a drug of choice for hippies. This is something that's been taking place historically throughout mankind for a long time. Sure, a new world is emerging, one where the earth and many states are becoming open to the idea. This is not a new subject. And this is not a new subject to uh, Chris Bennett, who has really gone to great lengths. If you haven't read the book Liber 420, I highly recommend it. And his other books are also amazing. So we're going to get into all of this goodness. His other books include Cannabis and the Soma Solution and Sex, Drugs, Violence, and the Bible, just to name a few. You may want to get a little visine for that third eye because this is going to be a heck of an episode with a heck of a guest. Mr. Chris Bennett, welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Chris, I have been itching to talk to you for quite some time um, about your magnificent work, Libra 420, not to mention Cannabis and the Soma Solution. You have Sex, Drugs, Violence, and the Bible. The laundry list of amazing research you've done and book titles that uh, lend credence to this is, it's really touched me. And I think that, um, uh, you know, a new world is emerging as far as cannabis. It's, it's seeming like a very new thing with dispensaries that look like banks. And, you know, it's very uh, cliche and getting popularized. But this is a subject matter that has been around a very long time. And you've touched on the spiritual uses and have a very convincing case of how cannabis has been tied and connected to the occult, Illuminati, Freemasons, and much, much more. Where where do we start this off? Well, you know, the the story of man's relationship with cannabis for its uh, psychoactive potential, for shamanic purposes, for religious purposes is one of the oldest cultural stories around. You know, Carl Sagan speculated that uh, cannabis was, in fact, uh, humanity's first agricultural crop. And we certainly know from 
archaeological evidence that uh, uh, production of cannabis uh, 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 fiber products like rope and cloth can go anywhere from 10,000 to 25,000 years. Uh, in regards to its use for intoxicating purposes, uh, there's evidence from Indo-European sites uh, going back at least 5,500 years uh, from the Ukraine, Romania, uh, places like that, that it was used in rituals involving uh, funeral practices. And this, this sort of use continued on with Indo-European culture for thousands of years. So the ritual use of cannabis is, you know, really older than any existing religions. And uh, um, as you mentioned, I've, I've tried to make a case to show its role in the inception period uh, of a number of uh, longtime world religions. Uh, um, and it's, it's really fascinating, the, the sort of archaeological evidence and the textual evidence that there is out there to back up such claims. Yeah, and you've um, backed these up in a, in a way that was previously unavailable, at least to my eyes, with a variety of books. Um, we've named a few. Uh, uh, others are Green Gold, The Tree of Life, uh, Marijuana in Magic and Religion. Um, you have Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible. There are numerous books that you've published, and you've published various articles on the same subject. And something that um, I, I like about the scope of your research is that usually people do not realize the pivotal role that marijuana has played in the foundation of ancient civilizations. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's phenomenal. You know, like uh, culture grew out of agriculture and as we've cultivated cannabis, it's cultivated us. Uh, um, and there's a lot to be seen in that. We almost have a symbiotic relationship uh, with this plant, you know, like in regards to human culture, but even like uh, biologically, you know, the, the, the receptor sites uh, that the uh, cannabinoids attach to only react that way because of their similarity to endocannabinoids that occur naturally in the body and uh, uh, rare things like gamma-linoleic acid uh, found in the hemp seeds, all found in human mother's milk and uh, there's endocannabinoids in human mother's milk as well uh, um, and uh, other biological kind of connections, you know, and, uh, you know, there, there may be some sort of explanation that we kind of figure out, you know, if you are what you eat, We've been growing this plant in our own human waste for thousands and thousands of years, you know, and having this interaction with it. And, uh, um, you know, it, it's a very keen thing. And, you know, I, I believe that cannabis is the very tree of life, you know, uh, um, and that it's here in this time uh, uh, by no accident that we're rediscovering this lost history. Uh, um, and uh, there's something very important happening with cannabis and going to happen. The best is yet to come in regards to cannabis. This, this information about the religious use, you know, I've been doing this research for over 30 years, has yet to really sink in outside of, you know, the more deeper seekers in the cannabis world, but it will. And, and when it does, it's going to cause a revolution in thought in the theological world in, in a very powerful way. I agree. And it, it, it feels as if, at least in my opinion, that as soon as there was money to be made on it by major corporations, as we're seeing in this era that, uh, of modern dispensaries, it's no longer the mom and pop on the corner 
doing this, um, as soon as there's profit to be made and, you know, public shares and board meetings and all of this in the medical industry, of course, it is being, uh, it is being utilized for, for profit making. And um, going back just a little bit, I want to get into, you, you mentioned your search uh, and wisdom into this research, and you, you've really delved deeply. What got you started down this pathway? What was, what, what was the, uh, the spark that lit the fire to, to get you to produce so much literature and offer so much to us in the form of all of your research? Well, I had a very powerful religious experience with cannabis uh, a little over 30 years ago in the winter of 89-90. And uh, um, that, that led me to try to understand uh, um, what had taken place, whether I just had, you know, I was stoned and just tripped out or whether there was anything to that uh, experience, you know. Um, I can tell you about that, I guess. It's a story I've told often, and I get asked about this a lot. But uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, I was a, a, really just a hardcore surfer. I grew weed, uh, worked a few nights a week as a night watchman in a fish plant. And a series of events brought about this religious experience. Um, and the first of these was uh, um, the Catholic Church was in a big scandal here in Canada. It involved... Uh, uh, um, a, a, an orphanage where children had been being molested uh, decades before, and these people had grown up, and they started coming out and making these accusations against the church. And it was, a, and this is like common type of news nowadays. But at this time, it was kind of the first story here in Canada that broke the silence on this uh, troubling matter. And so I thought, oh, that's so weird. You know, I was like, you know, uh, it was my parents were really hardcore Christians or anything, but I just always kind of believed the Bible, you know, naturally, just culturally. And I thought, well, I'm going to read the Bible, see what this thing's all about, you know, see what, it seems so weird that that was happening to me. And so I bought a Bible and I started reading it. I couldn't get into it. And I stuck it in the St. Watchman's office at the fish plant. And then uh, um, coinciding with this, a friend of mine recorded a, uh, a documentary on hemp. And at this time, the term hemp itself had kind of fallen out of the, the language here in Canada in regards to cannabis. You know, uh, um, I did, we didn't even know what hemp was when people started talking about it. Uh, um, and then he said, well, it's cannabis, and you can make all this stuff. But I, you know, grew cannabis. I thought I knew everything there was to know about it. And I was like, no way. And then I started looking it up in encyclopedias, and sure enough, there was this whole uh, fascinating history about its industrial applications. And where I lived, on the west coast of Vancouver Island, there was a great controversy about the logging of the last old-growth rainforest, Clackwood Sound. And my family, you know, my brother was the IWA, the, the union camp chairman for the loggers and stuff. So, you know, and I'd worked in the forest industry and things myself. Uh, um, and all of a sudden, there was this big environmental movement happening out there trying to save the last old-growth coastal rainforest in Canada. And I thought, oh, well, we could make paper out of hemp. And I started becoming really interested in it. And then around the same time, the Gulf War started in Iraq, and I'd seen this little uh, clip it about uh, Saddam Hussein, how he thought he was connected to Nebuchadnezzar, the last king of Babylon, mm -hmm. and ha had fired a Scud missile into Israel, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquered the, 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 the Israelites in the, in the Old uh, Testament uh, storyline. 
And uh, one night I was like sitting in this fish plant smoking a joint, and there was an ad for a sermon. This was with time before the internet, so uh, new, uh, television stations, all that type of stuff, had uh, printouts in the newspaper. And there was an ad for a sermon. Pat Robertson was Revelations 18, the fall of Babylon. And there's Robertson at the pulpit, and behind him he had pictured tanks and jets. And I was like, wow, he's tying in this Gulf War with. Uh, the book of Revelation, and you know, we're, you know, we're getting close to the end of the millennium here. I think everybody was kind of in a bit of a apocalyptic fervor there uh, as we approach 2000. And I'd seen the Omen when I was a kid, and I thought, well, I'm going to read the book of Revelation right now, you know. And so I opened it up, and I start reading it. And John, he's given this scroll, and it tastes as sweet as honey in his mouth, and he swallows it, and he begins to prophesy. And I was like. What has he eaten? And then I started reading further, and it's talking about uh, clothes made of sackcloth and uh, incense, billowing clouds of incense with the prayers of all the saints. And I was like, this is trippy. And I got to the end of the Bible, and I read Revelations 22, and it says, On either side of the river of life stood the tree of life, bearing twelve manners of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And when I read that, I had this experience where I felt like, light just beamed into me and that this was a reference to cannabis and all these different fruits were its uh, industrial applications that we could use to save the planet you know whether that be uh, biomass fuels to replace petroleum or uh, hemp paper or renewable crop instead of cutting down old growth forests to make pulp and paper uh, or whether it be like the protein from the you know the hemp seed itself is the most, one of the most pure forms of digestible proteins because it's the richest source of essential fatty acids. And, you know, cut hemp cloth to replace soil depleting cotton. The list is endless, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that the healing leaves were this medicine. And so, you know, I called up my wife at the time, my, my first wife, I've been married a few times, uh, um, and uh, started talking. She thought I was having some sort of mental breakdown, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm lucky I didn't get picked up, put into a hospital that night because I was like really in a manic kind of state and then the next day i got up and i was like wow is there anything to that or was i just tripping out or what and i thought well if there is then somebody somewhere else will have had an experience like this and there'll be something written about it somewhere and i just kind of went in this kind of manic state trying to identify what had happened to me and accumulating information on the role of cannabis in, in various religions, you know, and this went on for decades, right? It was, it's the only thing I actually write about it. I've written like four huge books working on the fifth, but they've all been uh, related to this uh, same experience, you know? And I, I'm saying that 30 years later, uh, 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 that the information is out there now to show that cannabis, just from a purely, you could be a total atheist. And I think if I laid down uh, um, cannabis's role to you in the ancient world, uh, particularly in the Near East, uh, you would see that cannabis was in fact recognized as the tree of life in Assyria by ancient uh, Canaanites and uh, polytheistic Hebrews. Uh, um, and it is here again. And it's it, what happened to me was real. Something did, did, did feed me information. And I followed up on it, and it's proven itself. And I'm, I'm quite convinced of that. And, you know, I'd have you to debate it with anybody. It's, it's a grand mystical secret. And it's amazing how you had a spiritual experience and literally stumbled upon it. But I, yeah. fi- I find that 
you know, it's very interesting. I've been looking deeply into, uh, you know, alchemical philosophers and A.E. Waite in his book, Lives of the Alchemistical Philosophers, says the gold of the philosopher is not a metal. And you, you find this throughout history in the search of health and happiness that many basically, I guess, elude to the fact. I don't, it, it's funny how this is skirted so often, but, um, and, and this is why I want to bring up Soma, which was unquestionably the greatest and holiest of these ancient Indian worships. And can we go into Soma, the offered beverage that was used for religious and spiritual experiences and how, how you came across that connection? Well, you know, uh, um, when I first started researching it, and I wrote my first books, uh, Green Gold, the Tree of Life, and uh, Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible, I, I was fully accepting uh, R. Gordon Wasson's theory of the flyacaric mushroom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it was just so, you know, well, it's been just so accepted by everybody, and I knew all sorts of people that I respected that also uh, held that view, like uh, Carl Rock, for instance, and uh, other other people. Um, and uh, I, I didn't really start looking into it till much later. And it was like, you know, I'm, I, it, I don't think people had the opportunity to write the type of books I write, you know, even like 30 years ago, because... Back in those days, you were, you know, you were pretty much tied to libraries and what you could access through libraries and private collections and stuff like that. But in, in our own time, uh, um, Google has scanned millions of books and put them all in a huge database. So you can do an index search of like hundreds of libraries, thousands of libraries worth of books with just uh, a quick look around, you know what I mean? And uh and I was, you know, just happened to be born in that time period, like the rest of us, where uh, this was new, you know. And so by starting to Google around a little bit, you know, word faced combinations like Soma and Hayoma, the Persian counterpart of Soma uh, from the Avestan religion that grew to Zoroastrianism, and hemp and cannabis and various spellings and uh, whatnot, all of a sudden I was able to get access to previous people, you know, a century ago, uh, um, and in between that, you know, that had all speculated about cannabis and soma, and there has actually been a pretty strong case for it, even before I had delved into this, you know. Uh, um, but the current, I think, you know, like based on the most up-to-date archaeological and uh, textual evidence, I think that the case for uh, cannabis and soma, and you have to remember that uh, it was known as soma in India, and it was part of the Aryan Vedic religion. This was a religion that came into India with Aryan, uh, Indo-European or Aryan uh, um, uh, uh, people, and uh, they also spread to other areas of the world, such as into Persia, uh, where they had the Avestan religion, and they had a similar sacrament called Haoma. And the only difference is the dialectic changes, these languages and religions grew out of an identical earlier ancestor, right? You know, and we know this because of the similarity in the text and the similarity in the languages and whatnot. You know, it's not like a theory or anything like that. 
Um, and um, they were connected with wider Indo-European groups, such as the Spathians, uh, who, who are well-known uh, nomadic uh, people that were, you know, one of the first people to domesticate the horse and things. And they spread even into far-off uh, China. And we know that they were there because there's been a lot of recent archaeological evidence uh, um, uh, regarding Indo-European mummies that were uh, found in central China. And the, uh, these are variously uh, known under different names, but popularly the Yushi or the Gushi tribes. And uh, we know they were Indo-European speaking, uh, 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 Indo-European people living amongst the Han Chinese, the indigenous Chinese. And they were very much into cannabis. And we know this because of really well-preserved archaeological evidence uh, that survives in this very arid, dry, cold climate. Um, and we found, you know, bouquets of female cannabis, uh, preserved cannabis buds, uh, uh, um, uh, tools, and then altars uh, used for burning cannabis that were used in funerary rites, much like the ones I mentioned earlier by Indo-Europeans, even thousands of years earlier than this. And so this is uh, these time period uh, in China that I'm talking about is like from 2800 to about 2600, 2500 or so uh, uh, that these artifacts are all from, right? And um, in China, the name for uh, given, like they have a long history of cannabis themselves, independent, uh, largely for uh, fiber and food purposes, but they began using a term uh, while these Indo-Europeans were in the region, uh, Huma, and Huma has been interpreted as fire cannabis because they burnt it, but also as Scythian cannabis, uh, Scythian's a group. And one of the Scythian names was the Heoma Varga, the gatherers of Heoma, uh, because they transported, they were highly nomadic, and we know from Scythian artifacts, that they both drank and burnt cannabis. There's uh, numbers of uh, finds in Scythian tombs. These go all the way into the Russian steppes and all over the place. They're all over the place, into Western Europe. And the Scythians are largely credited with spreading the ritual use of cannabis throughout the ancient world, as well as a lot of the common, uh, like a lot of the Indo-European languages, French, German, English, uh, can be shown to come from the uh, same Indo-European root, con, uh, uh, so it, it, even our own cannabis, adapted, which is adapted from the Latin, but comes down to the same Indo-European roots, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we, uh, uh, in Scythian tombs, they found incense burners, uh, as well as gold goblets uh, that were used to drink a preparation of cannabis uh, mixed with opium. And it's believed by Russian archaeologists that this was evidence of Haoma, the drink, of, of the Zoroastrians, and uh, it's quite clear the Zoroastrians and the uh, Scythians, although they were known in Persia as the Sakas, uh, interacted heavily in trade and cultural traditions. And um, there's a site that was uh, known as a trading, like uh, this, the, the, the Chinese sites where this uh, Indo-Europeans have gone. They've altered our concept of trade in the ancient world before things like the Spice Road were thought to have uh, opened up around 200 BC. Now it's gone back a thousand, maybe even 2,000 years earlier than that. And we know from artifacts uh, exchanged uh, found at these sites that they, the, the Chinese Gushi, uh, the people in China, the Indo-Europeans in China, 
that they were in trade with a region in Afghanistan known as the Bactria Margiana Archaeological Complex. And this is one of the spots that the Avestan religion that used Haoma uh, um, were, were located. And in this site, a Russian archaeologist, Victor Serianadi, has found three temple sites about the size of football fields. And half these temple sites were dedicated to the preparation of a sacred beverage that contained cannabis, ephedra, and in some cases, opium. Mm. And um, the idea is, and this, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to present this as my own uh, uh, material. I'm building this out of a variety of other researchers. The idea, come up with a, a number of different uh, 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 linguists, is that uh, the Chinese term, Huma, Heoma, came down with the Scythians, who were known as Heoma Varga, and burnt cannabis and used cannabis from archaeological evidence into this region known as Bactria Margiana Archaeological Complex and came with a name that it traveled with from China, Huma, and this became Heoma. And through further dialectic changes, uh, when these, these people expanded into India with the Aryan invasion of India, uh, um, became Soma of the Vedas. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so that's kind of like the nutshell version. But there's all sorts of other material stories, linguistic stuff related to that. But that's kind of the basis for the claim, you know. Uh, and, you know, when I when I really took a closer look at, at Wasson's material regarding uh, his claims about Soma is that, you know, he's really far reaching. Like there's you know, you got to remember the, the, the term Soma in the Vedas is used in a variety of different ways. Soma's a god, Soma's the moon, Soma's a drink, Soma's a plant. And, uh, um, you know, the moon in the sky was seen as a celestial cup of Soma from which the gods drank. And as it waned, uh, it was being drugged. And as it was replenished, it was being refilled. And all the Soma rituals were wound up with the, with the movements of the moon because of that. And probably for agricultural purposes as well, you know, uh, following the seasons and all that type of stuff. Um, uh, and Watson was often interpreting these references that are clearly to the moon as, you know, for building his identification of Soma. And in his arguments uh, for Soma, he left out the 10th Mandela of the Rig Veda and the other uh, um, Vedic texts uh, um, and uh, uh, was uh, referring to a substitution. Well, substitution did come into play uh, at a later time. This is why the identity of Soma was lost. But it has nothing to do with it uh, uh, being a mushroom, which was quite clearly prohibited. Uh, mushrooms were a prohibited food for, for Brahmins and other people uh, um, going way back in the Vedic religion because it was, you know, identified with growing a manure and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which was, was uh, unclean in their eyes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot more, more to it than that that you can explain in a, in a brief description. But that's kind of the basic uh, 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 case for, for cannabis and Haoma. And if you search around on cannabis and Soma or Haoma online, you'll probably find some articles I wrote where I mm-hmm. go into more detail and link to other material relating to this. It's fascinating, the effort. you've Mind-blowing, man. Just mind-blowing. And... Uh, nothing more. It's just mind blowing to me how 
how much is in this subject matter and kind of bringing it back to a bit more of a Western um, idea or ideology of the Illuminati, um, Bavaria, 1776. It is very well documented that Weisop and his cohorts were partaking of this and um, partaking of the tree of life, as you've said. And I find it also interesting that um, in a, a book that pre, pre, predates uh, 1776 out of Berlin in 1714 uh, by the title A True and Complete Preparation of the Philosopher's Stone by the Order of the Golden Rosicrucians, again, this is mentioned. And when we come even to the United States and the the beginnings of the mystery schools here in the United States with P.B. Randolph and the Rosicrucians here, the oldest secret societies here, it is also amazing that uh, P.B. Randolph was the first um, major hashish dealer. And I found it interesting that he was meeting with spiritualists, mediums, and others working with magnetism, mesmerism, and most of whom also used hashish. And I believe he first used hashish in France in 1855. And there were, there, there is a long list to the aid to the development of clairvoyance, allowing other feats with the use of, of these substances. So this has permeated pretty much every culture. And it, it just, it blows my mind that I, I recently heard, and unfortunately I can't find the information, that in the Bible, uh, it, it's in your book as well, but I can't find it. I'm looking for it, but it's somewhere in the 777 pages of magic here. Um, that a lot of this anointing with oils that we hear of biblically may have very well been CBD oils or things of the like. Absolutely. Well, this is something I've written a lot about. Uh, um, and this goes back, uh, you know, I think the most compelling evidence. Uh, well, the most compelling evidence is recent archaeological evidence out of Israel where cannabis was found at a temple site. But uh, um, these, my books, uh, even Libra 420, were written long before uh, uh, this was known. And when I was writing, say, my 2000 book, Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible, I was taking a really close look at references to this Hebrew term, cannabosum, that occurs in Exodus 30, 23, in Ezekiel, in the Song of Songs, in Jeremiah, and in the book of Isaiah. And uh, um, Sula Bennett, who was a Polish anthropologist and etymologist, uh, um, suggested that this term was a reference to cannabis based on following the modern term back uh, and, and showing it uh, similar terms for cannabis, cannaba, uh, in, in uh, the, the, the later, you know, later periods of, uh, of, of Hebrew uh, language, as well as similarity to Assyrian terms uh, for cannabis, cannabis, uh, um, and similar ways that it was used. And uh, generally, most Bibles translate, the modern King James and stuff like that, translate it as calamus or fragrant king. And Sula Bennett believed that when the Hebrew was translated into uh, the Greek, uh, um, uh, you know, a couple thousand years ago, uh, um, that they made a mistake and they mistranslated this term as calamus, and this followed 
through in all later translations, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very controversial theory. You know, in, in the first of these references, Exodus 30:23, God appears to Moses and flames of fire within a burning bush. Uh, um, he, 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 God commands him to make a holy anointing oil with about nine pounds of this cannabis, cannabisum, uh, uh, um, and mixed with uh, uh, myrrh and cinnamon and cassia into about a gallon and a half of olive oil. And every time that Moses is to speak to the Lord, he's to anoint his skin with this oil, as well as place some of this oil on the altar of incense. And uh, then he speaks to the Lord in the pillar of smoke over the altar of incense. And he never discusses anything with the Lord other then when this is burning and the smoke pillars there, and the other people of Israel, they never talk to God. They only know that Moses is talking to God if he's inside what's called the tent of the meeting, uh, uh, and smoke's coming out of it, right? You know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, now, interestingly, uh, um, in 2020, a number of you know, there's a lot of news stories about this. You can check out anybody listening in Arad, Jerusalem. Uh, going back to about 700 B.C., uh, they found a temple site, Jewish temple site, and there were two altars at this site, and, uh, uh, in, in, in the, the temple room itself was about the size of a broom closet, you know, very small, tight area that would have been enclosed, and on one altar was burnt frankincense, and on the other altar was bur burnt a cannabis resin product, not raw cannabis, but a cannabis resin product. Uh, um, and uh, so it proves that there was this use uh, uh, of cannabis going back to this, this time period in ancient Israel. Now, it's a very complicated story because what these references to uh, Kanabasim and the archaeology in Arad, Jerusalem, show is the reasons how it became prohibited. And uh, the big thing here uh, is that these later references, the first of these, you know, I'll go to Song of Songs reference, it appears in a beautiful garden, and again, associated with anointing oil, but, you know, the, the uh, a Song of Songs itself is kind of like a wedding story, you know, Solomon and the Shulamite is how it's portrayed. Um, and uh, then in the Isaiah reference, uh, um, God uh, complains that he has not been brought any kind of awesome, but he's been worried with the burden of sacrifices of their sins and stuff like that. So he's pissed off because he's not getting his due of, of cannabis. But elsewhere, it's pretty clear that that it's not always the case because we re read again in Isaiah how one of the seraphim flew from uh, me from the altar with a tongue of incense. He held it to my lips and, lo, my iniquity is taken away and my sin was purged. So the, the, the seraphim basically picks up with tongs a burning coal from the altar of incense and holds it to Isaiah's mouth so he can get a direct uh, hit, you know. Uh, uh, in, in Ezekiel, the reference uh, to cannabis is it coming in on a trade caravan, and then the final reference occurs in the book of Jeremiah at a time where Israel's uh, being you know, taken down by foreign kingdoms, Assyrians, Babylonians, and, and whatnot. You know. uh, um, cannabis is condemned, and uh, uh, through Jeremiah, God says, what do I care from your uh, kind of bosom from a distant land? Uh, um, your incense of Shiva, uh, um, and it's condemned, you know. And uh, elsewhere in Jeremiah, we, we find that it is uh, um, associated 
with the Queen of Heaven, and the people of Israel were burning incense to the Queen of Heaven, and Jeremiah, being a monotheist, this is, is very condemning of this behavior, and this is, uh, um, this is what happens with cannabis, is that although not widely known, you can easily look around to verify what I'm saying. I'm not making outlandish claims here. For a large part of the history of Israel, the region was polytheistic, and that means the worship of more than one God. It wasn't that they didn't worship Yahweh, who we know as Jehovah, the biblical God, uh, but it uh, uh, was not Yahweh alone worshiping there. And even in the book of Kings and Chronicles, this is detailed quite well. And one of the most popular deities that was worshipped during this polytheistic period was Yahweh's one-time wife, Asherah, also known as the Queen of Heaven. And others had written about, such as the botanist William M. Bowden, her cults, she's a Canaanite goddess, whose worship goes back, you know, thousands and thousands of years, uh, um, was uh, often associated with the use of cannabis incense and anointing oils as well. And the Song of Songs is likely a remnant of uh, this polytheistic period, as Solomon himself was accused of burning incense to the Queen of Heaven on high. It's all throughout the Bible, these accusations against Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, may well be like the you know, uh, uh, Semitic version of you know, the Near Eastern literature, say, like, that's devoted to Ishtar and Tammuzi, two god and goddess who are married. And also involved with cannabis. We know from Assyrian references to Kanabu that Kanabu was used uh, as a, a oil perfume by the cult of Ishtar and other Near Eastern goddesses as well, right? And um, archaeologically, there have been scores of these goddess figurines that represent this Hebrew goddess Asherah found throughout uh, Israel as well as a number of inscriptions that refer to Yahweh and his Asherah and show them as husband and wife. And so she was the queen of heaven. And uh, by the time of Jeremiah, um, as I mentioned, he, his, his text takes place uh, during a time when the Israelites were getting conquered by uh, foreign nations like the Babylonians and Syrians, and the whole list goes on, you know, up, up to the time of uh, Jesus. Um, uh, um, of, of, of foreign nations dominating the area. Um, and uh, there was a need to consolidate the kingdom. And, you know, there was no division between religion and politics that way. And monotheism, as much as a religious revolution, was a political one because there would be only one God that everybody worshipped, that everybody gave offerings to. And that was the God of the kingdom, the God of the king, his representative on earth, you know, the, the, the king was the holy king, you know, God, God's representative. And uh, um, polytheism did not fit in with that. And this is why cannabis became out of favor in, in the Old Testament period and why it disappeared. And now why we're refining out about both the artifacts of the goddess, but also this temple site in Arad, Jerusalem. And as I mentioned, there were two altars in this temple site in Arad, Jerusalem. One was burned for burning frankincense, and the other was used for burning cannabis. There was also two altar stones in the, in the site as well, one for Yahweh and one for his wife Asherah. And there's no one. This site was already known 
before the cannabis residues were discovered as a archaeological site that attested to the combined worship of Yahweh and Asherah, you know. And we could take a look at, you know, how the prohibition of the entheogens and erasing them from history has affected history. But when you consider erasing the divine feminine from history and the thousands of years of followed of women being second-class citizens, even chattel and possession, as, as, as identified in the Old Testament, owned by men. Uh, uh, um, the, the results of that are monumental, you know, uh, 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 horrific, and uh, to be atoned for. Totally, totally, yes, uh, overbinding control. And I'm so glad you brought up the divine feminine. It's such a big part of this and the ancient religions. I also, I'm blown away. If you don't mind, there's a paragraph on your, in in your book, Libra 420 on the page, on page 227. And if it's okay, I'd like to read just a portion of this paragraph. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, The name Arcanum, plural Arcana, comes from the Latin Arcanus or secret It came into use as the Dark Ages transitioned into the Renaissance, as alchemists were commonly said to be pursuing the arcana, or secrets, of nature, which resulted in the discovery of elixirs for curing disease, extending lives, as well as a means of deeper knowledge. The word itself came to be used to describe these same preparations. And with the mystery schools, secret societies, and kind of bringing back how all of this sort of trickles into... American Freemasonry and our founding fathers had many plantations of hemp. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I find it just fascinating how this has been behind the veil from the general public for millennia. And, And with the occult here in the United States, which is you know, a a little bit selfish to only look at ourselves, but we see the same thing. We see the, uh, hashish or this psychic substance being used by, well, probably the most influential occultists, namely Aleister Crowley, Madame Blavatsky, P.B. Randolph. They were all users of hashish. Mm -hmm. And it seems that in the search for soul consciousness, this is sort of the VIP um, plant. And it, this goes heavily into that divine feminine that you mentioned. And it, it is just mind-blowing to me, all of the layers that have been hidden from the masses. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's mind-blowing to me, too, even, you know, like, when I, when I, you know, it's funny because, I, like, when I was started writing Libra 420, I knew there was a lot of this, like, 19th century material, you know, uh, Crowley and Randolph and some of this, you know, and I thought, okay, well, that would probably be what will fill the book. Uh, but I thought I was really scratching when I began to look at medieval Renaissance material, uh, ceremonial magic, and alchemy. And uh, I thought I might be able to get a chapter on that. Uh, in the end, I had to uh, relegate all my 19th century material down to about one chapter, and I ended up focusing on the earlier period because there was so much more evidence uh, uh, for cannabis's role in both magic and alchemy than I ever realized. Uh, I was, you know, and, and again, I, you know, I think it just happens to be 
uh, due to being born in the right time period with the right type of thing that I was able to, to come across this, you know, uh, along with the millions of books that uh, have been scanned and entered into Google search engines, uh, were many Latin manuscripts going back to the 16th, 17th century. Uh, um, and fortunately, cannabis is spelt the same way or very similarly uh, in a lot of these Latin manuscripts. You can narrow down time periods, you know, search just the 16th century or whatever, uh, um, and search for through books from that time period, you know. And uh, um, I began to do this, you know, and most of the stuff is just, you know, agriculture information, uh, how to grow for fiber seed. But once in a while, there'd be some alchemical text uh, by somebody like Lull or other, some other famous alchemist, you know, Giorno Cardano or something like that, you mm. know. Uh, um, and uh, then you go, okay, let's look at this. And I was able to identify... Uh, references to cannabis as arcanums, which is a sacred elixir, and, and uh, uh, also known as quintessences, which represent the fifth essence. And this was, again, basically tinctoring. Tinctoring was a holy act in alchemy. Even the making of, like, you know, a strong alcohol was an alchemical art. You know, they would, like, take wine, bury it, let it separate, uh, uh, keep the clear liquid, repeat this process, you know, five times until they got a really potent, uh, clear liquid that was a very, a very strong alcohol uh, uh, substance. And then they would take plants and they would put in the plants and then uh, take the plants out, put more plants in, take it out, and they would get what they thought was the fifth essence, the soul of the plant, into this tincture, which was considered a chemical heaven. And so it would take the essence, the quintessence, the fifth essence, into itself as the chemical heaven. And Paracelsus and others perfected this art, and they wrote, you know, specifically about cannabis and opium and other other such plants being used in such tinctures. Uh, um, and uh, uh, it's 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 firm that there was a very powerful role in spigeric alchemy for cannabis and other psychoactive substances. Now, uh, well documented and in magic, <laughs> some of the oldest magical manuscripts such as the Picatrix, which goes back to the 10th century <coughs> Gayat al-Hakim, an Islamic book of, of magic that was translated into Latin uh, in the 10th or 12th century, I forget, but was kind of like the founding document of the magical tradition. And there's references to hashish in there for magical purposes, you know, and we, we know later references, you know, we, we talked about the anointing oil, uh, in the biblical, well, later magical texts influenced by the Bible, such as uh, the Sefer Raziel, Liber Salomonis, they prescribe cannabis mixed with other plants uh, for seeing visions in magic mirrors. And this is one of the purposes that uh, uh, Randolph and other uh, occult people use cannabis. Uh, they would take uh, cannabis, sometimes other substances, and they would stare into opaque mirrors until they began to see shapes and things like that. And then they would start trying to interpret this and even meet things in there. This was like a tool uh, for interacting with the unconscious in much the same way we interact with the unconscious when we dream and stuff like that. Very powerful, magical tool. And uh, cannabis has a long, long association with this particular act. Likely this was a method used by uh, Dr. John Dee and his uh, associate Edward Kelly.
mm-hmm. uh, um, they write about uh, um, uh, incense as being used, ointments and other uh, chemicals, you know, uh, uh, being used in, 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 in these books of his accounts with spirits. You know, there's re- clear references that indicate the use of such psychoactive preparations. Uh, um, so, yeah, this is like, you know, really, really, really profound stuff. Yeah, man, you are hitting all the right things. I'm firing on all cylinders and you're connecting them so perfectly. As you mentioned, the Solomonic magic and how Solomon was, was, you know, using this type of thing to literally bind demons into magic mirrors. And yeah. um, this is, this is fascinating that the same, these same practices have basically infiltrated United States mysticism. I mean, that's just blatant and in our face within a more contemporary time. But as you said, this has been going on for ages. And one of my favorite uh, subjects, and I don't know if you did this just by accident or coincidence, um, around page 420, Witches and Weed, um, I find this absolutely fascinating as I'm very deeply uh, involved in researching shapeshifters, Native American folklore, skinwalkers, etc. But um, the witches' ointments, as you write in your book, are particularly involved as a vehicle which enable the witch to travel, and that this is in a variety of ways. And, you know, it seems as if just about every major religion, spiritual idea, um, even secret society, there is a very obvious and hard to ignore foundation that is surrounded by the ideas of cannabis. Well, I agree. Yeah. Uh, you know, like you can take a look at like all the major religions, Taoism, uh, you know, there's like uh, uh, Taoist references to cannabis going back 26, 2700 years ago. Uh, um, and here's like a core train, I think written around 400 BC, first yin, then a yang. No one knows what I do. Jade Budge of Holy Hemp were the one that lives apart. They would burn it in incense burners uh, to travel to the uh, other world and things like that. And there's, there's well-known uh, uh, documentation of this. And they likely picked it up off the practices of the Gushi that I was referring to earlier because they were there in the same time period. Uh, it was when later Confucianism came into play that these practices fell out of favor. Uh, in India, it's still you know, used in rituals to Shiva, who's the oldest continually worshipped uh, god on earth. In, in the Shinto religion of t- Japan, Taima is a sacred paper, sacred cloth, sacred incense. Uh, and that's another ancient religion that you know, is, is pre-European contact. Uh, um, and uh, uh, we've already talked about the Hebrew religion. I believe this continues on in the early Christian period. And there's a good case to be made uh, um, for the role of these same anointing oils we were talking about uh, and, and incenses in the Hebrew period uh, throughout the early Christian period, uh, particularly among Gnostic groups, where, which, where there's clear evidence uh, of entheogen ingestion. Um, and uh, in Zoroastrian religion, which is very influential on magic, they were known as the agent magi, uh, um, and also on both the Hebrew and uh, Christian and Islamic religion, uh, very influential on them. Uh, clearly, there's these references to cannabis-infused wines and other preparations as well. And uh, in Islam as well, Sufis and dervishes, 
um, uh, um, have a long history with hashish. And uh, um, there's even texts like uh, the Dabistan that refer to the prophet himself ingesting bomb. Uh, um, and so really interesting stuff, you know what I mean? Like, and, and we're talking about the early periods of these traditions, which is really important, the inspirational period, before they just became dead traditions. And what I mean by about a dead tradition is it's, it's, it's like the Bible. It's a document. It's not like a thriving, living thing, you know? It's not like there's new revelations happening and stuff like that. It's just, okay, we keep going back to this one thing that happened, you know, way back when, and that's it, and that's where it stopped, you know. Uh, um, cannabis is, is the representative of the living tradition, man. It's the tree of life, which all these different faiths, these different nationalities uh, uh, sprouted from, the common factor, the common root, man. And uh, like I say, I think that th th this, is a, this is the time where that's going to become a reality, where people are, are going to reawaken to this magic, you know, to this, this, this the reality of the spiritual world, you know? It's a really big deal, Chris. And the way that you have been showing people the historical role of cannabis in the spiritual life of humanity is a really big deal. It is, it, it's very noble of you. Um, kind of kind of fast forward to uh, something recent and how you know people are scared of Fridays that fall on the 13th as happened earlier this month I find it very interesting that and I'm fascinated by the Hashishin or those assassins that the Knights Templar um, gained so much knowledge for and most likely burned at the stake for can we go into that just a little bit to kind of wrap things up Absolutely. You know, Friday the 13th is, yeah, is of course, the, the, the day they were rounded up by the church. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interestingly enough that uh, at two of the major Templar raids, both in England and in France, cannabis was reported. Large amounts of cannabis were reported on the list of seized items. They don't go into the detail anything other than it was cannabis, but if it was cloth or rope, it would have been listed as such because all these items were specifically uh, identified in these in, in these uh, seizure lists uh, of the church when they raided the the, the Templars, you know, and, and the, long before I ever wrote about this, there's was claims that the Templars had come into contact uh, with the Hashishins or the uh, a group uh, known more modernly as the Assassins, and there's a long-standing etymological theory that uh, Hashish and Assassin come from the same root, and this this earlier term Hashishin. And the Hashishin, uh, um, a lot of people say that uh, this was just a, a, a term labeled at them by their enemies. They never used Hashish, uh, uh, but uh, became associated with them because it was a way to attack them and stuff like that. But I don't think these people realized the esoteric history and connection to Hashish. And the, the Hashishin are an Islamic in, uh, group that was very, very influenced by uh, the Persian Zoroastrians, which I mentioned earlier. And in the famous uh, tale coming, you know, and you got to remember, like, a lot of the history you know about them come from people that are against them or Europeans, like Marco Polo. And uh, um, uh, one of the accusations made against them was that uh, the leader of the uh, assassins would get young men up to his mountain abode, and he dosed him with hashish and say he's going to show them paradise. And they'd take so much, they'd get knocked out, and they'd wake up in a paradisal garden uh, 
surrounded by beautiful nymphs and uh, then he'd dose them again and they'd wake up and he'd say, see, now you've seen paradise. You must serve me if you ever want to go there again, right? <laughs> uh, that's the myth. <clears throat> but um, in many ways, it's like just kind of a continuation of, of the Zoroastrian use of uh, cannabis-infused wines. And we know from texts like the Book of Ardu Virap or accounts of uh, King Vishtaspa that the Zoroastrians, for religious purposes, in order to enter the other world, would consume uh, wine mixed with uh, banga. Sometimes it's used in the term man. And this is a, uh, these are terms that are largely translated as cannabis, although some have uh, uh, suggested henbane and other drugs. I don't really, I think if you really take a close look at the etymology, and I lay all this out in my book, uh, uh, it's pretty clearly cannabis. And cannabis-infused wines were very well known in the age of world. These aren't the only references to them. Um, and they would uh, take enough to get knocked out, and they'd see their vision, and they'd come back and say what they had seen. And the only cultural difference here is, you know, the, the religion itself. And in the Islamic uh, afterworld, um, there's, you know, you're surrounded by virgins. You get, you know, 60 virgins or 70 virgins, 72 virgins or something like that. And this is what all replayed in the in the myth of the assassin, the effects of the infused wine. But likewise, when Ardu Viraf drinks it in the Zoroastrian religion, uh, he goes in the, to heaven and hell. And this is where the whole concept of heaven and hell come from, are the Zoroastrian accounts, right? Um, and uh, leaked into Christianity. It wasn't part of Judaism. Um, and so, yeah, and so... The, the idea is that the, the Templars had come into contact with the Hashishines, picked up this esoteric use of cannabis, and there's been numbers of claims in books uh, uh, that there was an elixir of Jerusalem that was a combination of uh, cannabis and uh, aloe vera uh, mixed into a palm wine. It was called the elixir of Jerusalem. But I've never been able to find anything past the 70s indicating it, but when I did look back into time period documents, as I mentioned, uh, involving the arrests, it was clear that cannabis was seized uh, um, from two Templar sites during the raids, and um, also that the uh, Templars had under contract Saracens, Arabs, growing cannabis for them in Spain, and Saracens were not, Arab people were not very uh, well-versed in growing fiber cannabis. They knew about growing resin cannabis that region and Spain grows excellent uh, uh, resin cannabis as well so it seems most likely that the uh, Saracens under contract by the Templars growing cannabis were growing resin cannabis and that there may be something to these elixir of Jerusalem claims uh, that still may emerge uh, um, but it's clear that on the seized items list that cannabis was seized from Templar sites and uh, you know the Templars it's believed they may have picked up on Gnostic practices uh, well in the Holy Land, and this is large, largely an accusation brought against them. And we see again these types of infusions used by the Gnostics and carried down even into the Islamic period. We know uh, um, groups like the Sabians uh, uh, were basically Gnostic sects that were still going. There's still some Gnostic sects in Iraq as well uh, up to this day. So. Uh, um, that, that's another avenue it could have come through. Mm -hmm. Man, your knowledge of the historical role of cannabis in the spiritual life of humanity is phenomenal, Chris. In, 
you've joined the masters, in my opinion, with the literary works you've provided that have an overwhelming amount of evidence. And these are topics which have been hidden by the leaders of the modern world and elites for pretty much all time that I know of. Lastly, um, with the Templars mentioned, could cannabis be the Holy Grail? Well, I think there's a lot to that claim. You know, a lot, the, uh, there's a lot of like perjured origins uh, uh, to the Grail mythology. Uh, the, the cup of uh, Jephetha, I think it was called as well. Um, and uh, uh, graha is like the term for the cup that the uh, that Soma was drunk from. And there's all these Persian connections to him and cannabis-infused wines, uh, like in the Ardu Vera uh, story, he drinks from golden cups, the wine, you know, like uh, uh, the cannabis-infused wines. So there's a lot of connection there. Yeah, I think that, uh, that the grail could well be cannabis, and uh, um, that's not just my opinion other people have written about that uh, like professor george luck also suggested this as well you know um and and i think that if you take a look at at the evidence board it, it's quite convincing that uh, you know the grail is described as something that's both root and branch i certainly think that's a much stronger case than you know the budget lay theory uh, about uh, uh, bloodline of jesus mm-hmm. you know there's there's a lot more to it than that when you read about the role of sacred cups and you see these same sort of sacred cups for cannabis use, even amongst the Scythians. And there's a Scythian connection to the Grail as well. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, there's there's a really powerful case for it. I think. Awesome stuff, Chris. Awesome stuff. My hats off to you. Where can listeners meet get all of your books? What's the best website for them to keep up with your research and? Um, what, what do you have out there? Where, where, can, they, where can they find you? I, I keep a blog over at CannabisCulture.com, and I post a lot of historical material in my blog. Um, and uh, you can find my books on Amazon, probably best if you're interested in the Asian world. Start with Cannabis and the Soma Solution. I cover a lot of different Asian cultures in there, all this biblical material that I've been talking about, this Islamic material, Taoist material is all covered in uh, Cannabis and Soma Solution because it's all interrelated to, to the history of Soma. And uh, the occult stuff, Libra 420 is your best bet. Uh, it's all covered in there. Um, I've got a new book coming out, The Lost Sacrament, that will be going over all this biblical stuff in light of the latest archaeological evidence. Um, and uh, I've got some videos, documentaries on YouTube. There's one called Cannabossum, uh, the history of cannabis in the Old Testament that goes into details uh, about this linguistic argument. But the video was uh, put together before this archaeological evidence came out confirming it. Um, and if you search my name in cannabis in Google or YouTube, there's lots of articles and interviews and things like that that will pop up if you want to hear more of my blab. It's great stuff, Chris. I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I always love keeping up with what you're doing and uh, wishing you the best, my man. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the modern mage, the mystic, the researcher of the historical role of cannabis in the spiritual life of humanity. He's been doing this for more than a quarter century, Chris Bennett. He is the author of Green Gold, The Tree of Life, Marijuana in Magic and Religion, Sex, Drugs, Violence, and the Bible, and author of Cannabis and the Soma Solution, not to mention this amazing book, 
Lieber 420, Cannabis, Magical Herbs, and the Occult. It seems that no matter how far back we looked, there are detailed historical references that Chris has explored which tie cannabis to underground and occulted facts in the mystery schools, religions, and history itself. So definitely support Chris, support his books, pick them up. They are a must-have in everyone's library. Don't accept the lies and find out more of which is hid behind the veil. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies. Feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Come blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like an evising. Blast off, blast off, blast off. Blast off. Come blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like an evil scene. Blast off. Blast off. Blast off. Blast off.